I remember this one time I'm playing my dad in Madden, and I had to be like 15, and he beat me. And I was like, man, excuse me. I was using my lames. I was like, fuck that shit. I'm going to write a song about you and diss you in it. He was like, bet, just play it for me. It better be jamming. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like that. And if it wasn't jam, it's like, yo, the beat's whack. But it gave me it gave me this certain level of confidence that, you know, if, if my father can tell me something whack and then I go back and make it jamming, and he's like, yo, that's it. And it don't matter what somebody else says. Let me start today's episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered with a thank you slash shout out to my former colleague, Bomani Jones, co-host of High Noon on ESPN. It's because of Bo that I was put on today's guest. Uh, this was years ago, and I'm not even sure exactly when Bo dropped his name, but the way he talked about him, I thought, hmm, that sounds like the kind of artist I'd like to listen to. So the first album I listened to of his was called Live from the Underground. And it reminded me of that country rap that I had grown to love, starting with UGK's Pocket Full of Stones, 8-Ball, MJG. He was from that ilk. Nevertheless, I was sold on Big Crip from day two. Only reason I didn't say day one is because after listening to Live from the Underground, I then had to go back and listen to Crit Was Here, which is a masterpiece. So I'm pleased to welcome president of the country south, country with a K, Crit. He is next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. You know, since I'm in the presence of a true Southerner and you, uh, Crit, um, I feel like we should start this podcast with you defining for people Mm. the difference between country Mm. and Southern. Uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of people, when I think of Southern, most people either know about Atlanta, been there before, want to go there, uh, understand what it's brought to the culture of music. And when I talk about Meridian, Mississippi, most people don't know where it is, don't want to go, never heard of it. Um, And to me, that's the difference. I mean, obviously, we're still in the South in that idea, but it's about being country and like trying to rebrand the idea of being a country bunking or some of the stereotypes that have went into being from Alabama, from Mississippi, uh, or Arkansas. And these these places are in the South, but they're not vacation destinations. Um, or just not being in a metropolitan city, period. You can be, you can live in New York and then make it to Ithaca and still talk to somebody like, man, you country, like, just because you're not in the city. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of, you know, share my light on that when people are like, man, you you from the South too, you should be doing this and doing that. Like, nah, man, I'm country, so it made it a little bit difficult when I went to some of these cities. The minute I talked, uh, they were like, man, so um, how's it feel to not see buildings and like being traffic? I know it's dirt roads down, and so it's a, it's a misconception. And we have cities that just our lingo a little different. But it, yeah. to me, even within the specter of what's considered country, it's a difference between, say, being from uh, Louisiana yeah. and being from Mississippi. So yeah. what are the particular mm. misperceptions that people have about Mississippi Specifically, I think a lot of it starts with what you've learned through our history, things that you've seen in movies that might have kept you from wanting to go in general. Um, and me, I'm, I've always like I started off very bitter with how I felt because most people didn't want to go, they didn't understand. And my music came out pretty aggressive, like you got to go, we got this, we got that. Like man, people, the southern hospitality is real. Our music is jamming, and they'd be like, yeah, but that movie I didn't like. You know what I'm saying? And so I was fighting that, and then they'd pass right through my city to get to other cities that were metropolitan. Like if you taking 20, you're gonna pass through Meridian to get to Jackson to get to New Orleans. So you could stop and you see the buildings. Um, and I just think it people just throughout time, jokes, history, and it's just a lot to fight in mm. order to get somebody to come to somewhere they just never expected to go and never wanted to. So what was it like growing up in Meridian, Mississippi? Humbling. Because you get used to like anything that you have, you were happy about. You didn't spend a large amount of time in traffic, so that gains you time to like learn from your elders, to um to explore your surroundings. Because outside of where I was from, we going out into the more rural areas and we in the woods and we kicking it and we just, you know, just learning to lay back and enjoy life a little bit. Um, and I think that helped me with my music as well to be more, a little bit more patient um, and want to showcase where I'm from in the best light possible. Now, you've seen um, a certain kind of evolution take place when it comes to how Southern rappers mm-hmm. are viewed. Um 
talk to me about what it was like for you and mm. the perceptions people had of you when you first got on the music scene. That I wasn't going to be lyrical. <laughs> really? Yeah, the minute I'm like, yeah, man, I'm from Mississippi, check my music out. Like, uh, I'm good, cuz. Because they either think I'm going to do bounce or I'm going to do crunk music. They didn't understand that I, you know, I love sampling old school music, and I had an understanding of East Coast, West Coast, and uh, Midwest because they only played the top ten records in the country in my city. So I didn't have an understanding of what my underground music would sound like. I was listening to LL Cool J, Jay Z. Um, you talking about Biggie? Then we listening to Pac, we listening to Cube, we listening to all these people. Um, and so I knew how to rap and produce those things. So when you listen to my album, a crit was here. I'm taking you to the West Coast, to the East Coast, to the Midwest, to New Orleans, like. Because I had to learn that this is the popular music. This is the people that this is the music people want to hear, and I have to be prepared that everywhere I go, I can rap in those cadences. So, how would you describe what is a Mississippi sound? It's a, it's oh, maybe a, it's a Meridian sound. Maybe well, it's, it's even it, more. It might be a Meridian yeah. sound right now. Hey, yeah. <laughs> um, it's like a melting pot, but I'm 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 finding my own way of like adding a certain grit. And the soul comes from the blues that I listened to growing up or like my grandmother playing B.B. King and all these things. So I know how to implement the soulfulness into a, a, a crunk record or the soulfulness into a, a trap record um, because of how the music that I grew up in my household. Now, um, you've seen, obviously, uh, again, as I said, this evolution of how Southern rappers mm -hmm. are viewed now. So what would you or how would you say Southern rappers are viewed now versus when you first came into the business? <clears throat> um. I would say it's still like this trivial thing that happens whenever Southern hip hop continues to press um, or push the envelope, they come up with another name for it. It's either mumble rap or it's booty rap or it's it's, it's just every time it's just something. Um, but it also showed that a lot of people understand in order to do some of the music that you see a future do, um, a young thug do, the cadence carrying that happens, the turning your voice into an instrument, this is not easy, or what the Migos do. And people can try to reduplicate it, but you can't do what they do, right? And so that is a, a skill level in art form all on its own. Um, and I, I had to learn, like, man, no matter where music goes, as long as I stay true to myself and keep building, that I'm going to find the respect I deserve. And every time they decide to change what Southern rap is really doing with a negative connotation, it won't it won't keep me from keep like keeping on or pointing the finger at these artists that are really pushing the envelope. So do you feel as if the industry, um, or maybe the fans themselves, I mean, whoever it is deserves the blame, that they try to make Southern rappers or Southern rap into like caricatures, you know what I'm saying? I just think the battle, I, I just remember growing up and it was never like the South and Southern music was like this other thing. And we were watching the East Coast and the West Coast like dominating beef. And then all of us, I mean, we had Luke, you know what I'm saying? And all that, uh, that was popping at the time. And when underground music, I was listening to UGK, A-Ball and MJG, uh, Scarface, Ghetto Boys, you know, Outkast, and it was all these artists. And I think there's a reason why you got Andre that they win an award and they're happy. And he go like, the South still got something to say because they're so overlooked when it's this this huge beef and hip hop going on. And so to be at this point now, I think we're still like just trying to fight and re-secure that place. Like, hey man, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been spitting. Um, but you know, I mean, it shows. Now you um, you play high school baseball. Yes. Yes. Um, I oh. guess. Uh, what? Uh oh, I'm asking that too trivial. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not about to ask you to like My list. Stats off. No, no, like I'm not about to. Okay. You know, ask you to list off all. You know, like uh, every member of the Three Thousand Hit Club okay, or anything thank you, like thank that. You. No, please don't. No, what I was going to ask you is that how did um because you were serious about baseball, like yes. you know, through no hitter, yes. right? And so hey. you were you were really good. So how did you? Develop this passion for music as you clearly had a passion and in a certain amount of intensity when it came to playing baseball. Um, is first off, music gave me a voice that this like playing baseball didn't necessarily give me at the time. Um, and then I, it was crazy because I remember making like the, the I made five hundred dollars off ten beats, and I was like. I'm like like 13 or 14, and I'm like, baseball, I had made no money off of at that point, obviously. I traveled to Atlanta, sold 10 beats, made $500, came back, and I went shopping. First off, I bought the Paul Pierce shoe that came out, two Dickie outfits that had Big Crit down the side, and I went to school, and it was like, whoa. 
music is way more lucrative right now than playing baseball. And that just kind of changed my narrative before. Like, it was like, I thought right. fast forward. Yeah, I mean, fast forward. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's not really, but yeah. I mean, but I, I had a cousin that played. He had the opportunity to go pro, and he didn't really make it. He was way better than me, so that kind of deterred me. There was some uh, other people ahead of me that they had spent time in the uh, AA, and AAA was like this way farther idea. And I was like, man, I don't know if I want to be doing this when it's like I got music right here, and I was making leeway to the point where I'm writing lyrics on my baseball gloves. And all my partners is like, man, what, what song are you coming up with now? Because I'm in the dugout, like, man, I'm really ready to go to the studio. And it just, my passion shifted, and then music became the voice I wanted. And so it, it, it initially got me out of uh, Meridian, and here we are now. What did your family think about this shift into music? I was tripping. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, looking at 106 and Park or the basement, and I'm like, I'm going to be on there one day. I mean, you know, back then it was like, man, come on, man, that's like going in outer space, right? And I was like, I promise you, when we get there, and it became this thing where you know you're fighting against people not not because they don't believe in you, they just never seen somebody do so it. So did they actually think it was more possible for you to become a professional baseball player than to become an artist? Yes, yes, or at least have some kind of baseball career hmm. because you could see that there were people that would come home and have camps, um, and even if you were in double A or triple A, you still could have some kind of living. But being a, a, a artist or a rapper. And now, really, in the time, there was only one person from Mississippi that we could look at, which was David Banner, that had actually made it. I mean, he had Boo Rosini. Uh, he was doing it. Um, but Banner was it. And then when you hear his story, it's like, man. So for me to have to leave Meridian, end up in Birmingham, then end up in Atlanta, and the transitions and not really having any supervision, and then my parents are like, what's going on? It made it a little difficult for them to believe. And then I, I come back and I'm 145 pounds and stuff like that. Make them a little scared, you know. Yeah. So what was it that you either did or maybe something you said? Like, what was it that convinced them that, hey, he's going to be good at this, that he's got a future here? It was the music. The music was the sole thing. Why they Like, you know what? I Because every time it would seem like it was almost over, I'd drop a song, I'd come out with a mixtape, and they could hear the growth even though it was turmoil around me. So they knew that I, but he's got to. He, I don't know how he's finding the energy to keep doing this, but he is. And uh, I think that's what kind of kept things going. And God just kept throwing things in my life, be it selling a beat or somebody wanted me to mix an entire mixtape in one night, and that'll keep me going. So in 2010, mm. you made the coveted XX, XXL yeah. freshman class cover. It was yeah. you. Ken- 2011. It was 2011. 2011. Okay. Yeah. But it was you, Kendrick, YG, Mac Miller, Yellow Wolf. Meek Mill, Lil B, I think that's who it was. Um, when you think about that cover, like what kind of comes to mind? Hey man, we made some moves. We made some independent moves. There was a, some Grammy people in there. You know what I'm saying? Um, R.I.P. Mac. Um, Sci How the Prince was on there too. I want to make sure you come on now. Yep, I, yeah. I, I was like, I felt like I was missing somebody. Yeah, I think all of us were able to really find a space where we could just be ourselves in the like after that, because that was like we signing deals and everybody like, oh man, we finna start touring with bigger artists and like all our OGs is starting to mention our names, and um, I think underneath all that pressure, we was all able to like really become the people that we were even then because I remember talking to Saha and I was like bro this is so crazy and we're in the airport uh, in Atlanta and you know they tell you don't if you if you see another artist don't tell them where you're going just in case they're not going because they ain't want nobody to know and I'm like bro you after you going where I think you're going like yeah bro yeah I think we're going to the same place and then we pulling up in different Ubers I'm like hell yeah cuz like we're from the side we're going down and then Mac had I had toured with him before and and then um, I remember seeing Kendrick in South by Southwest 2010 with J-Rock. And it was just all this camaraderie. Like, damn, bro, this is crazy. And so as you as you can see now. Yeah, yeah it feels like like a, a draft class. Oh, you yeah. know, like when you if you're a professional athlete, you look back to see who you're drafted mm-hmm. with and, and where everybody is now. Yeah. So it was kind of crazy that you were, you know, on that kind of cover where everybody wound up Being, doing yeah. something like really impactful. Mm-hmm. So what was it? The process. What was it like? What's this backstory behind you signing your first record deal? Ooh, buddy. Uh, the backstory behind signing my first. Well, the idea of I remember getting a call from Johnny Shipes in 2009 because he wanted to work with me, and that was Cinematic Music Group. And um, I literally comprised 22 records, which is Crit was here. And I told him like, man, um, I'm in a financial position where if this doesn't work, 
um, I'm gonna go back home and just work with my dad on the railroad and stuff. Because it was it got to the point where it's like Brown got nothing, the phone's cut off. He had to literally like I couldn't call him back. So everything was like a text message through kind of situation. And um yeah, man, I told him like I work for six months. If something pops off, then I'll sign. And I got up to New York, started working with Creative Control, uh, Steve OGFC. I ended up meeting Dutch at the same time. And it was this conglomerate of people that was like, all right, bro, this music we believe in. And then Shot Money came aboard to listen to the album. Uh, yeah, man. Shout out to Smoke Dizzle. And I ended up meeting L.A. Reid randomly. And he's like, yo, I love what you're doing. I want to figure out how to make this work. And that was a blessing. I didn't have to stand on the table and rap my record and nothing. He's like, bro, I love the music. And yeah, before you knew it, I was on Def Jam. So what was that feeling like? It was, look, I I, I met L.A. Reid. We, we, we was about to make it happen, and I bust out laughing in his face. It was some of the wildest shit ever. And I know he probably thought, man, this boy's crazy. Like, I literally like, just bust out laughing because in my mind, I was like, oh, this is going to change everything for my family now. Like, this was the moment. Bet I get to change everything. And um, after that, we got in the elevator, and I thought to myself, oh, this is when the work really starts. And but it was it was a roller coaster ride because LA wasn't there at too much longer after that and it was a room full of new people and then I had to fight. Mm. I had to fight with trying to get a record out, to get the the support I wanted for this song, or playing your music for people that may not. Well, have got what it. was the pushback? Well, the pushback at, in 2011 for my albums because Kanye albums geared to come out, so that was one thing. Uh, sample clearances was another, um, and it's like. It's like literally being on a runway with jumbo jets, and you got your your small plane, and they like, nah, you can't take off yet, cuz. <laughs> like, mm-mm, you ain't, we ain't ready. And so my first single dropped September 2011, but my album didn't come out until June 2012. And that's a long time to like, it's coming, it's coming. And I dropped the whole mixtape in between, which was forever than a day, mm-hmm. which might have ruined my takeoff for Live from Underground. <laughs> You're dropped. like, why well, I'm waiting for takeoff? Let me launch this missile. Yeah, 16 <laughs> records of soul. This yeah. and I'm just going off, and then my album come out, and I'm yeah. It was it was an interesting time. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned your family's history in terms of working on the railroad. Mm-hmm. So how many people in your family work? Well, my uncle started working. My uncle Jerry started working on the railroad, and he had been working for a long time up until the point my dad got on. My dad used to be uh, he used to work at Food Max in the produce department. Shout out to my pops, man. I'm sorry I'm telling these stories like this but so my dad had a way with making people feel like he could tell if the fruit was ripe just by like staring at it or something like that i have no idea but it's like did you inherit this quality i don't i, I, def, <laughs> I definitely didn't but i think as far as like having a mouthpiece or being debonair maybe i got it from him because they believed him like zach just just point out the one and he's like just that one and then they come make it was so amazing i'm like pops how did you know i was like i didn't it's just they believe because i said he was able it was. to sell it yeah, yeah. And so um maybe i got my marketing ideas from him but he started at Food Max and eventually got on the railroad, and I saw a change in his his life so quickly. And I was like, man, maybe this is something I could do. And people had known me from playing baseball that he worked with, and I might have had an opportunity. Yeah. So how much? But did that motivate you seeing what they went through by working on the railroads? How like how much did that motivate you in terms of I don't want to. I don't want that to be my life. Mm, they work a lot, man. It's like mm-hmm. six days a week. It's wildest hours. It is very dangerous job. And, um, you know, but I, I knew that worst case scenario that I, I had the discipline to go do that. And it, it would it would obviously take care of me financially because anything's better than being like homeless when you're thinking about that. And I was in Atlanta from couch to couch, didn't know what meal I was going to eat. And I had too much pride to call home and ask for help because if I told him, it's like, oh, man, you really got to come back. So it was like a real last hurrah thing for me when Crib was here. Mm. Um, you and your pops have an interesting relationship. Yeah. I, I've seen other interviews you've done, and you <laughs> refer to him as your best friend. Yeah. And you've talked very openly about some of the ups and downs mm-hmm. in your you know, relationship. How did you... Because uh, I, I don't think it's just black men and black fathers. Because mm-hmm. I do think black women go through this, too, with their mothers. Mm-hmm. Like Black parents spend a lot of time trying to obviously protect their children from what's happening in this world. Mm -hmm. And the only way most of them from a certain generation in particular could know how to do that is like through heavy handed Mm -hmm. discipline or like just getting at you. Mm -hmm. Like, so no friendship actually develops. So I'm not saying that, you know, we know we ain't supposed to be on their level, quote unquote, you know what I mean? Especially coming up, but how you seem like you were able to successfully kind of change your relationship mm. with your dad. How did you do that? Well, it would be with my dad and my mom. Mm-hmm. I think, and it's just, it's, they they divorced when I was five. So I never really saw them as a together thing. 
And so that in itself made it to where when I had a problem, I could choose which one I wanted to talk to. And the way that they would share dialogue with me, it wasn't like the pressure of like, well, let me see what your mama think. It was like, well, this is how I feel. And then I could take certain components from that. And over time growing up, it, I got to a point where I, my relationships with them were so open that I had freedom of speech. So I was making music, I was rapping, I was 13, I was cussing. And who you gonna play your music for? Your friends. So I'm playing my record for my dad because he got knocked in his trunk. I'm playing this soulful love record for my mom. Like, mom, what you think about this? And I'm rapping about certain things that um, would be more adult and they would give me their honest opinion. And then that just opened up this dialogue if I was ever having issues, not only with music, school, relationship, friends, I could be brutally honest and then they would be brutally honest back. And then same with their relationships and their friends and all that. And so it just made it easier to talk. And so um, I remember this one time I'm playing my dad in Madden and I had to be like 15 and he beat me. And I was like, man, excuse me. I was using my language. I'm like, fuck that shit. I'm going to write a song about you and diss you in it. He was like, bet, just play it for me. It better be jam. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was like that. And if it wasn't jam, it's like, yo, the beat's whack. But it gave me it gave me this certain level of confidence that, you know, if, if my father can tell me something whack and then I go back and make it jamming, and he's like, yo, that's it. And it don't matter what somebody else says. I think I'm more amazed that your dad beat you at Madden. Look, look in the first, history of Madden, hey, who loses to their parents? Man? So first off, my dad was a gamer and still is a gamer. Okay. And you got to think about when Madden came out, he obviously had more time to play it than me. Tecmo Bowl, if he was playing it, it's not like he's giving over the joystick because he technically would have been my age at the time. And I'm not finna, I'm like, no, I got one more game. You just one more game until I go to sleep. You know what I'm saying? So that's what my pops did. So yeah, he know the spin moves. Like, come on. Oh my like, gosh. Oh. oh, no, just because so so <laughs> few parents actually take interest in the video games, mm -hmm. right? And so that's why I'm just like, you might be the only person in history that ever lost to their dad. No, I can't. No. No. That's funny. It's just Don't unusual. It's just unusual. He's going to roast me when he hear this stuff. <laughs> I know that. He's going to be like, thank you, Jay. Thank you. Admit For admitting that. Yeah. Hey, it's cool, though. I got him back, though. He can't beat me now. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> Does he still play? Yeah. Okay. On NBA 2K. Oh, jeez. Yeah. No, nah, it's terrible. Oh, it's terrible. Hand-eye coordination has went down. It's all good, you, though. You, do you talk shit to your dad? Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Just from back then, he made it this way. Mm -hmm. Made it this way. Okay. Well, you guys like have a very like close relationship. Um, honestly, clearly is a, is a is a part of that. But you know why? Why else do you think that you guys click as well as you do? Because it, it is hard. It, it's, it's hard to to feel like you're a best friend of a parent. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It's usually very different. I realized how difficult it had to be for him and, and for my mom, too. And um, and the understanding, like, back then, you just work and work and work and not knowing what he might have been dealing with, it with anxiety, you know, with pressure of, you know, taking care of the bills, even though you really can't. I'm wanting this and I'm wanting that. And you get older and you're like, damn, man, that had to be really difficult. And you couldn't express yourself to me when you're so frustrated. I think even your mom, like I think moms have a great way, and they probably don't realize when you get to, when you're that kid, and you're like, mom, 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 and she's not responding. Think about how far back in her head she had to go before that hundredth mom she said something. She had to really be like, you know what? No, I'm watching Oprah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so that had to be difficult. And so I got older and I started to understand a little bit more about mental health and like being patient with people and them being able to express what they're going through in the moment and disassociation. And it made it a hundred, like a hundred times more like easier to talk to my dad and be like, man, how's your day today? Instead of me just being like, hey man, it's going on. Boom, 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 boom. So. Yeah, you, you made a, a very conscious and active choice um, to be open about mm -hmm. some of the mental health struggles that you've had with yeah. depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. What gave you the courage to, to be more public about that? Yeah, people, I mean, because the idea of like, man, you don't want to complain, right? It's like, man, every I, wake, I woke up this morning, my album's doing very well, um, I got to go do this show, boom, 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 but I'm sad. And then you're trying to figure out, man, well, who can I call? And then you kind of run into that, man, what, what you got to worry about, man, everything's looking up. And then you got your vice at that moment. Well, you're like, you know what, man, I could just have a drink, I'll be fine. Or some of my homies, I'm just smoking, be good. And these things become like real, like things that you kind of need. Even you start eating, you have a drink. You go to a party, you have a drink. Then before you go to sleep, you have a drink. You wake up, you have a drink. And before long, you've isolated yourself and your emotions. Well, you're not telling people how you feel, and all you got is advice to kind of suppress it. So one day you you can't handle it no more. And that anxiety hits, and now you don't know who to talk to, how to express, and you disassociate, which is fight or flight. And yeah, and that happened to me in Las Vegas 
where everything was going well and I just overindulged and all the emotions I'd had, all the anxiety I had just took me there. Was that, would you describe that as your low point? Yes, mm-hmm. but I was at a high, <laughs> which is weird. And I was talking to somebody the other day, it's crazy to be know so many people but feel so alone. And your mind will do that to you. Mm. So how did you come out of it? Therapy. Yeah, I ended up finding a really great therapist. Uh, didn't believe in medication. So it was a lot of like working through my emotions, my triggers, um, breathing techniques, realizing when I'm going through something and why. Telling people I'm not feeling good. I don't. This is how I feel in the moment. Um, and, you know, and in this industry, in this job, you know, sometimes you still have to work through it. But just trying not to indulge in my advice to do it. Well, I mean, it, it's... To me, the the extra burden that you carry is like being somebody who's a famous and a celebrity and to a lot of people who look, you know, outside looking in and say, mm. oh, he's made it. Mm. So I don't understand. Mm. Um, but does being in the public persona as you're going through this, like how much more difficult is it to manage? I mean, you know, you got to turn it on. You know, before you hit that door, you might feel a way you come through that door. You're like, hey, how y'all doing? Because, I mean, sometimes, and I, I, I go through this, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, attach it to a particular men- mental health struggle, but sometimes you just ain't in the mood, and you just don't want to be bothered, <laughs> and that shit is real. Like, yeah. I mean, I appreciate, you know, the people that come up to me and ask me for a photo, or they, mm. they want to talk about certain things. Um, I I love that part, and I'm, and I'm happy to... Um, you know, I'm happy to oblige him, but there are days where I'm just like, yo, I am not in the mood for this mm-hmm. today, you yeah. know? And so imagine you, you build up the reserve to just know that, you know, right, I'm, I'm out in public. Somebody may come up and speak to me. I'm not really feeling well, but I'm preparing myself for it, you know, because I, 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 I again, I can't really, I don't want to put off put what I got going on off on them. And if they're excited and they're trying to give me positive energy, then I might really need that in the moment. You know, because I might have just got off the phone, super negative, and this person like, yo, you, I love your music, I love what you're doing, I just want to get, I might need to get, that might help me out of the situation. So I try to keep that in mind. Well, is is it hard to, because not only are you mm-hmm. in the entertainment industry, you're also a rapper, and there's a certain <laughs> machizo, a machismo that rappers are supposed to have. Y'all mm-hmm. supposed to be, you know, bulletproof and not mm-hmm. feel anything yeah. and be thugs, you know, and mm-hmm. all this other stuff compared to how some people stereotype you. So... Does that make it even harder because people look at you to some degree like a superhero? Believe it or not. So I've done, when it comes to the music, I've been able to rap about like this full spectrum of myself. So records like The Vent, records like Yesterday, uh, records like um, oh, just, just Price of Fame. I've given people a, a look inside when I don't feel like big crit. So you feel like you've been vulnerable enough yeah, to, to what they know. Well, yeah. you can, well, you say Justin. Yeah. Because I don't get like, I'm just more like, oh, I'm in trouble. But I mean, to do, forever's a mile long time, and you have a big crit side and I have a Justin Scott side, I was able to give people both um, and show them what I go through. And so it makes it a little easier when they walk up and sometimes they might can see it on my face. And I'm like, you know what, man, you know. And that's that's a step in the right direction, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting about your fans, and uh, in a in a way, I guess before they got to Fallon, it kind of reminds me of the Roots fans. So the Roots mm. are, I I struggle because I feel like um, to some degree when I say the Roots are my favorite group, though I've decided that I'm a cheat and put them into the category <laughs> of being a band. Okay. Okay, because they are a band, right? Yeah. Outcast is probably my favorite rap group, okay. right? Outcast and NWA. Oh, Depends on what wow. day it is, right? Okay, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Some days it's mm, like... When you don't feel like talking to nobody, it's NWA. Hey, it's NWA. <laughs> Some days it's, you know, gangsta gangsta, yeah. right? Um, and, uh, you know, the Roots fans, at least pre-Fallon, mm. I think, like, they that's a dedicated group. Yes. Like, you don't... You're not a fan of the Roots. You fuck with the Roots. Yeah. Your fans are the same way. I didn't know I could cuss like that. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, we can cuss. Yes, that's, hey, the, that's the beauty of that's it. That's awesome. The yeah. passion behind it. Yes. <laughs> yes, your yeah. fans fuck with you. Yes. So what is it about that relationship that you have with them? Why do you think, like, they're so dedicated, you know? So what is it about your relationship with them that you think um, that has allowed that kind of love to, like, develop? I think it's, it's building a family. Um, the idea of multi and the brand, and even my rap name is... A, it, it's supposed to be bigger than me. Uh, creators being a king remember in time, and everybody should want to be a king remember in time, a queen remember in time. Multi stands for multiple uh, multitasking. So you have to play multiple positions in your life to ensure your success. I think we all can understand that when you got to go do this and do that, do that, and then you want to be the best, and this is happening. 
Um, but in making it more of a family thing, like I don't feel like I'm entertaining when I get on stage. I feel like I'm creating moments and we, we're getting this off our chest, whatever we're going through. And this particular song resonated with you so much because you were going through it, you want to wrap it back to me as I wrap it to you. Um, and I think the humility of it and me also expressing what I've went through and we documented in that and me growing on a musical level and they can see the person that I was when I was 25 is not who I am now, I was 33 and that, oh, I know you got kids now, so I hope you play the clean version and I promise I'm gonna make the bass a little bit lower so the baby, you know, it's, it's these things that they know that I do because I'm aware of what it's like to be human and I'm not trying to be this superhero guy. Like, no, I love making music and I just want them to grow with me and vice versa. Yeah, because it feels like a lot of the fans of yours that I talk to and just personally know because uh, we all love your music, they talk about you like a family member. And yeah. like there's you have a lot of day ones, yeah, like yeah. people who like been fucking with you from the beginning. Man. And that's kind of unique really mm -hmm. to be honest in, in a lot of different fan bases like yeah you I'm sure you got plenty of Jay-Z fans that have been rocking with him yeah. since the beginning of time but you know there's a lot of people that came in with his more successful entry mm -hmm. points and so the relationship is just kind of different yeah. you know if that makes any sense well um, I gotta give a shout out to Mina Mina is um, she's a definitely a day one but to the point where when social media started pushing with Twitter like she was one of the first people that's like yo you need to be tweeting more you need to be doing this doing that and then even the idea of creating K4L and now Mina is multi. She works with us. Like we we fam. And so it's growing these relationships where people have been so influential that we become business partners too. And it's like, oh, you know, when it, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and just over time, I think again, you grow. And I always told people that I'm like their country cousin. You know, again, I'm bringing you to somewhere you never thought you would go before and, and enlightening you in a way where it's like, damn, man, I want to go there now. So, yeah. 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 No. I mean, it's um, at the same time your fan base too. I mean, what constantly, you know, when you talk to people who um, dig your music or just the conversation mm -hmm. around you, two words I often hear repeated are underground and underrated. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think that is changing now. I was about to say I don't know if you mm -hmm. are still underrated at yeah, this point. Yeah. I think I think the underground thing I champion because I know what it's like what it's like to be there. But I, I feel like I, I'm ripping that hatch off now. I'm like, ah, I'm out of here. And uh, with being underrated, man, that's up, that's left up to opinion now. Mm -hmm. I think people are there's somebody's in a barbershop right now going hard for me, right? You know what I'm saying? Like there's somebody that's at the family barbecue, like man, you gonna play that crib record though? So it's just you know they become the street team now. And again, I'm not from a metropolitan city. You know, it's fifty, I mean forty three thousand people where I'm from. I've been able to go different places. I'm rapping about country shit and, you know, and on the West Coast and people are going, ham. like, I'm talking about learning shit from Texas and we're not in Texas and people are going up. So it's working and it's, it's um, I don't know, it just takes a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. It's geography lottery. <laughs> you know? Hey, you can't help where, where you're you from. Exactly. Where you can't help it. Like, you didn't you didn't come mm -hmm. out here getting that, being able to choose a zip code. So, exactly. So I get it. So. Um, well, look, I, I got a lot more I want to ask you, particularly about not just your evolution, um, you know, as a as a rapper, but your evolution as somebody who had to let go of the controls a little bit. Oh my God. <laughs> so we'll talk about um, yeah. both your venture into being a, a, a independent label, but also actually working with producers. Yes. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that after the break. Okay. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So another kind of change, uh, I guess, in this evolution of creators, like you produced, um, one of my producers looked this up, you produced 70% of your music, right? Um, out the gate, you did everything, yes. right? Mixed, <laughs> you did yeah. everything but sell the popcorn, as yeah, they say. Exactly. But now, you know, in your, your latest project, you 
actually let somebody produce you. Yeah, uh, yeah. We did. I, what what made you change hmm. and go from the dude that's always in control and spearheading the project to actually handing the reins over to somebody else? Well, it's it, the crazy thing. So I went to Rico Love had a music conference. Um, it'd be roughly two years ago now. And we we're sitting there and Mace is on stage and we're talking about hit records and music. And in front of like 400 people, Rico Love was like, yeah, I think you're doing a disservice to your to your, the people that love your music, but not trying to make bigger records and working with people. And at the time, we had been, I had been talking to my manager anyway about getting out of my comfort zone and just working with other artists. And I was sitting there like, damn, you're right. You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe I have become too comfortable with the, where I'm at. And I was like, you know what? In front of all these people, like, man, we're going to work on my next album. Right? He was like, bet. And then I literally walked out the room. I called my manager Dutch. Like, yo, I'm going to get in with Rico, I think, for this next album. And that's when it started. I had played him like 15 records while we was out there. And it was like, yo, I like these. I like those. I think we need to elevate this. And the key thing with him was like, bro, you're going to be able to be yourself. It's just the sound we're going to elevate, right? And then I was able to get in with Danger, DJ Camper, Khalil. Uh, man, I'm going to forget some names. I'm so sorry if I forget your name. You produce... Uh, Oh man, I, f I forget right now. We've been on the road so long, but but it was just working with all these people. Wallace Lane was one of them. Tay Beast was one of them, um, and working with all these producers. And like man, it, it just gave me an opportunity to like just be a little bit more creative in the writing perspective. So if you go back and if you listen to the album critics here, like every record I'm kicking a different cadence because I don't have to make the beat and then listen to the beat for hours and get fatigued. And, and then they, they're going to do drum patterns that I wouldn't have made. They're going to sample differently. Like the chord progression is going to be different. And it, it made me have to make my voice more of an instrument. Um, shout out to Wolf the Michaels because he produced on it too. And I think people could hear the growth more. And then we worked with Jason Joshua who did the mixing. And I promise you, his clarity and his mixing, I had never heard myself like that either. Every inflection, every word drop, the, the country, all that, it was like right in your face. And so I think this this album was like, I, I needed this album. I needed it to feel like this and to show people that I'm willing to, to, to step forward. Was it difficult to adjust? Yes. Okay. Yes, terribly difficult. <laughs> terribly difficult. Terribly difficult. Did uh, you, I mean, did you, did it call, I mean, conflict's probably too strong of a word, but, you know, you used to being in control. Mm -hmm. So was it hard to just kind of say, hey, okay, you do it? Okay, so you're in the room and they play a beat and you, <laughs> like, I, everybody's digging it and I have no idea what I'm going to say on it, though. And I was like, that was the beginning. That was the, the first, like, damn, I don't know how to approach this. I don't know how I'm going to sound on this. And Rico and them was like, bro, just try it. Just try it. And I'm talking about, you know, some people be going to sleep and shit. Like, I'd be working for a minute. And then once I finally get the verses down and we play it back, it's like, this shit hard. Like, and it was a different energy that I hadn't seen from people that were used to hearing my music. Like, my manager probably heard maybe 600 songs of mine, right? But for him to be excited about this particular record, it was like, okay, this is the, a renewal thing. It's an energy thing that I needed around me. And after a while, it was like, man, play that beat, play that beat, play that beat. Boom, 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 boom. I'm, I'm on it. All I wanted to do was rap over, over other people's shit. I stopped bringing my laptop with me. I was like, nah, bro, play me what you got. I'm in there with the with the phone like, bitch, nah, that one, that one. And uh, yeah, man, I look up. We had like 80 records done for the album. We had a listening session that involved 50 songs. We started at 3 o'clock. We played all 50 to 12. And then we played, we, did, we dialed that down to 22, played all 22 for hours. And then we got it to 18 and played those over and over again. You sound like somebody that, um, as you developed this passion for music, that you were kind of like a savant, a music savant. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I've never been called. <laughs> I appreciate it. Feel free to take that with you. Oh, but man, like, you yeah. sound like somebody who, who is already, <laughs> who is always, um, kind of understood the, the the craft of of what it takes to mm. to create like where did you like where did you get that from oh man um i mean i, I started playing the, the cello in fifth grade and like a string instruments and then i played the cello in fifth grade and i played the tuba from like sixth on out through high school. now was that an instrument they cho you chose or did they make you play that well, so first? this is what happened right <laughs> you don't have to pay for the cello because it's too big of an instrument, the school provides it for you. You don't have to play for the tuba. It's too big of an instrument, school provides. So all you got to buy is the bow for the cello and your mouthpiece. Mouthpiece seventy five dollars. There's no way my mom or anybody in my family, my dad, could afford a saxophone, a trumpet, a trombone. So I chose the instrument the school provided. Um, <laughs> I was like, and even if they could, I don't know if that seventy five dollars is going there. Straight up, <laughs> yeah, straight, straight up. up right? So um, so and all those instruments are bass heavy instruments, um, but the. I don't know. It's just being in music that early and having an understanding of chord progressions and dynamics, crescendos and stuff, I think really helped with how I approached rap music. 
Um, and then on top of that, loving poetry. And when I figured out Tupac was a poet, mm -hmm. and it made it easier for me to write my words to rhythm. And yeah, just being very serious about it. Like, no, uh, when you were starting this process, as you mentioned, you know, they at first it was difficult for you. They give you a beat and you're like, oh, what am I going to say? Mm -hmm. Was it just hard because you didn't know where the beat came from, from an emotional standpoint? That, and I didn't know if I was going to let down a producer that was playing it for me. Like, you, I couldn't let it down myself if I made it. And if I didn't like it, nobody heard it. But if I know if I got this cowbell, this 808 snare, this kick drum, and I got uh, a Bobby Womack sample... I know where I'm going with this and then tempo, but this particular producer didn't use a sample. He made it all himself. His core progressions might not be in the key I'm used to rapping in. Um, his, the tempo might be faster than what I'm used to, and he's excited. And I, you know, I don't want to let him down when I go rap about something. He's like, yeah, it might not be what I. But I've run across that enough now that you get in the in the, in the studio with the the right kinds of producers. If you do something that they don't like, they can at least point you in the direction of where they were trying to go instead of just being like, I ain't like that. Like, right. nah, man, well, what do you what did you expect or what do you see? And some of them are like Rico, dang, like these are people are great, like, man, but what about maybe you should go here with this? Man, just be a little lighter. You know, rap about and that just that helps me in, mm. in the long run. It makes it easier. So is um so is Crit the full time producer? Is is it RIP to Crit the full time Hell producer? Hell no. I mean for your own stuff, right? No. <laughs> no, it's He's not. Super okay. jealous. Like, uh, me as a producer was super jealous. <laughs> Super jealous. And it's to the point where I, I was able to get one record on my album, which is uh, Blue Flame Ballet. And we perform that every night. And I'd be like, see, I told y'all my, my shit be jamming too. Kind of <laughs> shit. Um, but I mean, I, I learned so much on a production level from working with other people now that I'm I'm, I'm approaching the way I produce totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially with beats, man. Because they, they're geniuses, like Camper and Danger and... Like with the mic, I mean, all of them are, are geniuses, but it's it's crazy to see the the lengths that they'll go to make something sound a certain kind of way. How do you think it it helped you as a rapper? Uh, I just think it made it easier for me to get in the room with with other like not only other producers but other artists, other songwriters too, because I was very protective of what I wanted to rap on, how I wanted it to sound, how I wanted to hook the sound. Now I'm more like, man, what I do well, again, what I did do you have? I play it with the hook. You know, I used to be the person I'm writing all the hooks. You know what I'm saying? Like, I understand publish. Give me all of them. Now I'm like, man, now play with the hook, bro. Let me see where they were going with that. Mm. And maybe we tweak it to make it more like me. Uh, so do you feel like, now you probably feel like you're more versatile. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. Um, now, uh, as you look forward to, you know, maybe where you want to go with, uh, with, with what you're doing now from mm. a musical standpoint, what... Is there a particular muscle in your creativity that you want to flex or you feel like you want to develop that you haven't been able to yet? Scoring movies. I want to score movies. I want to. I definitely want to get into the writing process of them. I think I, even, I don't know, we just did some uh, amazing videos in my hometown. I'm already in Mississippi with a child that did energy video and she did... Um, um, oh man, this is I'm, oh I'm going through it right now. <laughs> she did energy video and crit here video, but the way it was made and how it goes now, and I'm like really more in, interested into the, the the camera things behind the camera and how to put the music to it. And yeah, I think scoring is gonna be. So you're trying to be Rizzo out here? <laughs> yeah, oh man, I would love to. I would love yeah. to be able to just be behind the scenes and create the soundtrack for it. Well, along mm -hmm. along those same lines, are there are there artists you haven't worked with that you feel mm -hmm. like you will? For real, for real. Haven't worked with for real yet. I don't have a record with Timberland yet, and I need one of those. I don't have a record with Adele. I gotta get me one of them. That would be nice. Uh, Kanye, Drake, Jay. I got me one with Lil Wayne. Hey, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, so you haven't canceled Kanye? Huh? Yeah, nah, nah. Production. I mean, he finna do a gospel album. We gonna see. Are you interested to see how this will turn out? Yes, I'm from the Bible Belt. I sure am. Yeah. And I want to see what happens after that. Yeah. Musically. He said he's done with secular music. Hey, man, look. And hey, and it's I'm just, you know, as long as there's some powerful stuff that's positivity for the people, I'm all for it. Um, you know, not to, I guess, uh, bring sort of a, a down note to oh. it, but I felt like I, I definitely should ask you about this, is one of the artists I know you were supposed to work with was Nipsey. Yes. Um, explain the backstory to that. So the Believe record that's on the album, uh, originally I, I ran into Nip in Atlanta. I, I forgot it was like a, it was like an open mic um, situation. I hadn't seen him in a, in a little while, and I was like, bro, I got a record for you, you know, because I'm working on my album. And it was always been this camaraderie thing that we, but we had never did a song together. And, you How know, did you guys even meet? Cinematic. I was signed to Cinematic, and he was too at the time back in 2010. Um, and I was like 
green, like new. I, I get up there and I meet Smoke Dizzle, Currency around, Stally around, you know what I'm saying, and Nip. And we had a show, I think it was like a double XL show or something. And I just remember the homie even back then being very adamant about independence and what that means of branding and marketing yourself the way you want to be marketed. And that, that never stops at all, you know, until even when he got to a point like, I, you don't need a label, it's a marathon, we're going to do this, and he's going to do it his way. Um, and then running into him uh, at the at the open mic thing, and be like, bro, I got this record, getting his number, and then really being adamant, like, bro, making it happen, getting the record, and he's like, bro, you know, as far as doing it, like, I got you. And yeah, mm. and that happened. And I remember the morning the morning of, I was playing the song for somebody, and I'm like, man, they're going to get on this. And then I found out about it. And How did... um. You know, how did that personally impact you? You're somebody who had a relationship with them. You were this close to working with mm-hmm. them. I, I mean, and I, 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 the answer is sort of obvious, but just yeah. give me some insight about how that impacted you seeing him him killed. I kind of um, I got off of social networking for like for like a week. I was kind of good on it. Um, it just like it, it brings you back down. Like you 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 strive so hard to like um, impact or do something positive or make something happen. Or especially in this music industry, you can get really caught up in this bubble of like wanting your record to be heard, your album to be heard, getting the accolades that you deserve, being up there with your peers, and then something like that happens, and it has nothing to do with music, and it just takes you away from your family and friends and all of this. And me, it just made me realize, like, man, am I focusing too much on just? I want to be heard in this music game. Like, am I not giving, am I not calling my family enough? Am I not giving people that I know they flowers enough and telling me, oh, I love you? And man, I know it's a lot going on, but because it just brought me back to how we ain't, like the superhero aspect, like, nah, bro. Like, mm. And uh, I just had to chill. And I called Johnny Shipes, I called Smoke Dizzle, I called Steve O, and I called people that I knew and knew him before I did and that knew that it was like, man, like, bro, are you okay? And yeah, man, it was rough, dog. It was rough, and it's still, you know, one of them things like, man, it's just hard to believe that, that could happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I still, um, especially because now, uh, or at least in recent years, there's been so many, so much more content uh, that's been built around uh, the murders of, of Biggie and Pac, right? Mm. And I still watch it because uh, I was in college when they mm. were both killed, and I'm just like, I can't believe that actually it happened. happened. Like, it's still, it, it's to me, it's like it happened yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's like, this actually happened to two of the most talented people mm. to ever do this in, you know, in history. And super young. And super young, and back to back. Like, it was just, we barely recovered from one, and then yeah, it was like, happened. oh, we lose a biggie too? Mm-hmm. And especially looking back on it now, and, and just all the stuff that surrounded them, it was just such nonsense. It was so senseless, you know? And so it's still kind of hard to... To believe that that was something that you know, and then we have actually so much, lived through, and we have so much information now that mm-hmm. amongst all the positivity that you could see, like people showing love, then you find some negativity too, <laughs> and that's why I have to like, no, nah, I got to put my blinders on and cut that off. And then again with R.I.P. Mac, because that was another one, like man, like, and so it just puts it into perspective when I run into my homies and my peers. I'm asking them, how you doing? How's your family doing? Like. I ain't tripping. And wanting a real answer. Yeah, a real answer. Like, man. (laughs) That's the other part of it. Yeah, it's it's a big thing, man. Well, one thing about, um, you know, Nipsey is that uh, independence seemed to be a lasting legacy that he will Mm. lead. You know, the things that he was doing in the business and how he was um, in control of his own brand. And the community, yeah. And the community. I mean, it was really ahead of its time Mm. in in a lot of respect. Um, You've adopted a lot of that um, Mm. in terms of, like, going independent yourself. Um, what's that experience been like for you being now and now mm. on a, your independent vibe? It's been freeing. It's been freeing. It's been scary too. When I left the label, I was like, whoa, buddy, like now we got to make this all happen on our own. Um, but then I realized a lot of the relationships that I built over the time, you know, being respectful to people, radio DJs, um, when you get in these rooms with tastemakers and stuff, like I wasn't an asshole. You know, I was really like, man, I really appreciated what they were doing. And so fast forward, they wanted to help. They wanted to be a part of what we had going on. Then most of the people didn't even know I was signed to Def Jam. They just knew it was multi. Mm. So the brand, I did it right. I was branding myself all the time. So once we got off, it was like, nah, we still there. All these opportunities are still available. 
and um, it's been amazing. But it's still you have to invest in your stuff itself. It's still hard work. At the end of the day, I'm still out here on this. I'm going hard, like. But now comes the opportunity to have artists come aboard, and I know what it's like to have this for your marketing budget, and I blow it all. I know the bare minimum you need to make an album, and it still be amazing. And yeah, and I'm hopefully I can bring that to the next artist that comes on. Was this always the plan, or what? Was there other factors that led you to leaving and doing your own thing? No, it wasn't always the plan. The plan was to sign to to Def Jam to stay there to to sign to Def Jam and be this huge hip hop Mm -hmm. artist. You know, win all these awards. I mean, that can happen, but for the most part, you rely like long as you're you. I went into it wanting my music to be heard. That's all. I just want to be heard and. As long as I keep that mind frame, I'm successful. Did you feel like that wasn't happening at Def Jam? I I, I think I lost track of what I wanted. Like mm-hmm. I saw what other people were getting, and I'm like, man, I want that. I think I deserve that. I need to be there. And in real life, I think God was like, that ain't for you. You know, my personality did. My personality didn't allow me to do certain things when it comes to like music or social networking. So I wouldn't be put in a certain position where like, oh, that's gonna make me uncomfortable. So I think my path has been kind of directed towards I can completely be myself, do the music I want, do the videos, interact with people, and then not cause me to have this emotional like guilt or frustration. Mm. So what does success look like to you? I'm here. I'm here. I'm, every day I wake up and something new happens. Like this is, it's it's amazing. Now there's nothing to take for granted. And um, furthermore, just putting other people in a position to do what they want to do now. Mm. I think. So I feel like we need some controversy in this podcast, oh, no. man. So I have it's light work. No, I get we need some controversy, man. So uh. <laughs> it's a game I like to play with my guests. Um, oh shit! Yep, we're gonna edit this out. This ain't live. Is it? <laughs> you lucky it's not live, but it's going in because okay. I need you on the record oh, my about pressing issues in okay. America today. Okay. And the rules of the game are very simple. Mm-hmm. You have two choices. Don't create a third choice. Don't try to add in other factors to help you choose. Like, well, what if it's, is it on a Tuesday or what the, no, Why no, no. Why are you no, doing no. this to my Southern hospitality? You know yes. that the country boy I know. is like, okay. I know. And it's because okay. I love your Southern hospitality okay. that I treat you this way. Okay. So you got two choices. Right. You got to pick one. Right. Fate of humanity depends on this. Okay. This is very God, serious. Damn. Okay. I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Real right. talk. It's called this or that because I'm too lazy to name it. Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Salt on grits or sugar on grits? <laughs> Salt. See, all you guys from Mississippi, all you Southerners, y'all don't all say salt. Some of y'all still saying sugar. Yeah, but that's oatmeal at that point. See, this why this why I fuck with you. This yeah, why I'm you saying, know that. Or look, cream of wheat. Like, yeah, I'm not. It's in. salt on grits. Yeah, I am. Salt and cheese and yeah, pepper. Man, yeah, and you can throw some bacon in there if you just want to. See, which is yeah. Hey, all right. I knew it. Uh, collard greens with ham hocks or with turkey meat? Hold on, hold on. Say it again. Collard greens mm. with ham, ham hocks or turkey meat? Or collard greens with turkey meat? Uh, see, this is the thing. <laughs> you told see, me like see you about to qualify. Because <laughs> uh, I, got, I got to break it down with an age. Like okay. if, I, if before I was on my healthy food, grandma is going to be ham hocks. I mean, if I got to get it now, it's going to be with turkey meat. Okay. That's... You see where I'm going. I with see where you're going. Like, you kind of pick two answers. I'm gonna let you slide because I, mean, I understand. Ham hocks. The man. way diabetes is set up in black people yeah, and the way our see, hypertension works. Trying, I understand this. Yeah. UGK or Outcast? What? <laughs> UGK. Would you rather throw a no hitter or hit for the cycle? Mmm. See, you gotta we gotta say what game it happened in though. No, we don't. You gotta be like in the World Series. No, would you rather? No, it doesn't matter. I told you don't be adding stuff. Mm. Would you rather throw a no hitter as someone who is actually throwing a no hitter? I've hit for a cycle too, though. I didn't mean to underboss you. I'm just so saying, you've done was, both. I'd rather throw a no hitter because the pitcher could be terrible. If the pitcher's terrible, I could possibly hit for a cycle. Right. No hitter. Degree of difficulty. Yeah, you know, all the batters ain't terrible. No. Got you. Um, red Kool Aid or sweet tea? Sweet tea. <laughs> You said no. You, if you said purple Kool Aid, I might have went purple. Really? Is it you like that better than red? It's just I don't know. It's, it all tastes the it same. It just hit different. Huh? Okay, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, exactly. Uh, in and out of Whataburger. Whataburger. Southerner. Ooh, Ooh you such burger. a Southerner. <laughs> Whataburger. Y'all ain't got nothing going with them fries, man. 
fries. the fries at in and out are trash. Do like they, oh. no, are they, the fries at in and out are trash. Uh, but the burger is yeah, better than burger. No, I tell you though, what a burger that chicken biscuit. That'll, that'll get your life all the way right. I ain't never do the chicken Ooh, biscuit. Ooh, it'll get your life right. The water, all right. All right, mm-hmm. but you pick Whataburger. Yeah. All right, and finally, LeBron or Jordan? Oh, my God. Uh, LeBron. LeBron. What's your case for LeBron being the, being the GOAT? Mm, I don't know, man. I ain't never seen. It's like, first off, he really he a small forward, power forward, right? The amount of physical contact and then finesse that goes on. I just think we ain't seen a kind of player like that before ever. I mean, because he kind of run the point, and then he can be a center at the same time. So that degree of difficulty, that's that's a large amount. Mind you, he was able to take a team to the championship that wasn't quite built like any other team we've seen actually win a championship. That degree of difficulty. And he said Booby Miles, and he been representing. So, yeah. And he, real, I got a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I got a partner over here right now that's totally disagreeing with me in this thing. I'm going to catch some backlash, but I said it. That's right. This Sounds is for good. controversial opinion. Yeah, this is supposed to happen. This is right. This is for the unbothered, mm-hmm. right? And you, you put out there, LeBron. <laughs> you wrong, but that's okay. See, we ain't. See, you first, got the right to be so wrong. How can you tell me that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. No, I'm sorry. But okay, so I, when I was watching Jordan play, I was at an age where maybe I wasn't. I was viewing it, but I wasn't viewing it the way I view basketball now. So actually having to sit down and like you're watching the game. Me and this age. The way I'm viewing it is totally different. So, again, the same way you'd be like, ham hocks, or, you know, the kid in me would say one thing, but the person watching now, I have to say another thing. The kid in you would say ham hocks. I understand. <laughs> but the adult and kid in you should say Michael Jordan. <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, yeah. no, but That's I, a difficult one. Why you ask You ask everybody? Yeah, I, I don't ask everybody LeBron or Jordan. I try to tailor the this and that. Why to the people Because I know so Look I, you made an entire song About basketball players Right yeah. <laughs> On criticism yeah, okay. yeah. Yes you did. Yeah, I did So I figured This would be right Good. in your wheelhouse I did it you. to myself You did it to yourself Blame yourself Okay Alright All right. Well right. Chris I know you have A lot of things to do I want to thank you so much While you spent this time Here in thank LA you. For coming by um, Spending a little time with me yep. um, uh, I may not be a day one I'm a day two it's Or three But the good. whole point is I support you the music is is amazing. So I, I just, I'm sure you just still scratching the surface for as oh, much as you've man. already produced. You just Lord, still scratching the surface. Girl, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm on it. Yeah. I'm on it. If I'm a new artist all over again, I'm on it. I, I heard that. <laughs> all right. Well, Crit is getting out of here, but I am still sticking around. Y'all know what's next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. This edition of Fucking I'm Bothered is brought to you by Sylvia Obel, an extraordinary entertainment writer and a personality for BuzzFeed. Uh, she hosts a great show called Hella Opinions, of which I have had the pleasure of being a guest. Now, recently, Sylvia sent out a tweet that made every black journalist clutch both real, imaginary and fake pearls. Sylvia posted a screenshot of a passage from an October GQ profile of Rihanna. Now, this particular passage is what made the pearl clutching go down. Because here's what the writer, who is describing being in Rihanna's presence, wrote. And I quote, Normally, I bring a list of questions, but I didn't have time to prepare one, which I make a split-second decision to confess. I'm winging it, so you have to help me. Now, she made that confession to Rihanna, who, according to the piece, just gave her one of those cute winks and smiles and said, aren't we all? Now, I've been a professional journalist for 4,000 years, and I can tell you on everything I love, and y'all know when black people say that, it's some serious shit, that I have never, never, ever, never, ever, ever told an interview subject that I wasn't prepared and then put the onus on the subject to help me do my damn job. The reason why me, Sylvia, and a bunch of other black journalists were so fucking bothered by the writer admitting that she wasn't prepared is because white privilege. I'm sure when the writer, whose name is Abby Aguirre, put that in her story, her and her editor probably considered that it would be a cute little detail to share to further crystallize Rihanna's greatness. Yes, not only is Rihanna one of the world's best entertainers, ridiculously good looking, but she's so benevolent that she would help a poor, unprepared journalist. 
Now, after the backlash, the writer explained she was out running errands when she got a last minute call from Rihanna's people that she had secured the interview. She didn't have time to prepare. Let me tell you all something. My editor could tell me 30 seconds from now I'm interviewing Rihanna and I could pretty much guarantee I'll have at least 25 questions, starting with, hey, Rihanna, if I hung out with you for one night, how long would it take for me to wind up in a ditch, wake up with a tiger and a baby I've never seen? Next, if I told my editor that I told Rihanna I wasn't prepared, he wouldn't consider that a cute little anecdote to put in the story. He would consider it me being unprofessional as hell. Much like in any profession on this earth, black people are always held to a different standard. The mainstream media space is a very white space, especially in entertainment. We don't have the luxury of sharing with our bosses what we don't know, what we can't do, and how we aren't prepared. We just aren't given the same latitude. Now, it was very gracious of Rihanna to be amused by this, and she even was asked about it after the interview was published, and Rihanna said she thought it was, quote, badass and wasn't offended by the writer's lack of preparation. But on behalf of all the black journalists out there, hell no, I ain't letting that shit ride. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hold up. 